Uh, we are in the midst of our series through the book of Luke. Um, and uh, the series is titled the, To Seek and to Save. Seek and Save. And, and if you remember, um, what we just talked about are people that we send out to go out to seek and save. Right? We, we, we are sponsoring people saying, we recognize we're called to stay. And if we're called to stay, that means we're called to go where we're at, but also to send others out. And our church has always prioritized a major portion of our budget for that purpose. More than most churches you'll ever be a part of. That we desire to, to do everything we can to send people out. To send you out into this community, to send people to surrounding communities in our nation and even abroad. And that was Jesus' mission. Because Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That there is a lost world, and it's our job, Jesus gave us the job, to go seek and to help save them. To tell them about who he is. That that's our responsibility. If you are a believer in Jesus, and you have surrendered your heart to him, okay, the reason he didn't suck you up into heaven to be with him forever is because he left you here to do this job. There, there's no other reason. Like, it's cruel if we don't have a job to do. It's cruel that Jesus would say, oh, I really want you. Oh, stay there in the mess. Not too bad. Take that. Like, that, that wasn't it. He, he understood and we understand that if we truly know who Jesus is, if we've truly surrendered our life to him, can I just tell you, you're going to be weird in this world. Because when you see things in the world, you're going to see lost things, not good things, not saved things. You're going to see broken things. Your heart's going to break. It's going to be hard for you. And you might find some coping mechanisms to deal with it for a while, enough money, health, whatever, but eventually it catches up with you. And it's like, what is the purpose of life? And Jesus said, look, I am the son of man. I'm the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who God said, you need a savior that's not human, that's, that's God himself that will save you, that will die in your place for the justice you deserve. And that's what we've looked at this week. Here's what I, want to, what I want to look at. Each week we take a question from the passage. That's what we've been doing. As we work through Luke, we find all these questions that people are asking Jesus, that Jesus is asking us and asking people. And this is one of those questions we find in the passage. It's, will he find that faith? Let me ask you, will Jesus, the God of the universe, find the kind of faith that desires to seek and to save the lost? Do you have a faith that, that drives you, that, that your major concern in life is not how to pay off your home mortgage? Not that that's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not that you'll have enough money, because there's never enough, right? I mean, if you think you're going to have enough money, ha, you're, you're funny. Like, there's going to be something that breaks. You're like, well, now I don't have enough, right? That doesn't mean we don't live on a budget. It doesn't mean we don't plan for emergencies. It just means that's not what we live for. It's not where we find our security, our safety, our hope. We find it in a faith. And Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things we can't see. It's the assurance, the absolute assurance that what I'm hoping for in a relationship with Jesus, that there's a good God of the universe who loves and has justice, that hope that I have, I'm going to place, I'm going to stake my life and my faith in that. I'm going to be assured that he is who he says he is. And that's where we find Jesus walking through, trying to give people this message. And quite honestly, people rejecting it because it's not what they want to hear. And it's no different than today. That we give a message that there's faith and people say, I don't believe all that faith stuff. <laughs> yeah, you do. I've said this numerous times in our church. I haven't said it in a while, so I'll say it again. How many of you looked underneath your chair before you sat down and found the inspected by sticker before you sat in it this morning? Then you had faith. And even if you found the sticker, guess who you had faith in? Number five, whoever that guy was, right? Expected by number five. He inspected your chair. He sat in it, jumped up and down. Like, you placed your faith in number five. You placed your faith in the company that built the chair. You had so much faith just to sit down this morning that it's astonishing. Now, why did you sit down? Well, these chairs have held people. I don't think that FX Church is trying to make people fall down and laugh at them when they sit in broken chairs. Like, I think they'll pull out the broken ones. I, like, it looks like these chairs have held people before. It held me last week. See, see, that's faith. 
You don't know. But we have faith. So as we dive in, will he find that kind of faith? And unfortunately, what we're finding Jesus as he goes towards Jerusalem to die, because remember, he's on a mission right now and he's teaching on his way. Luke is saying Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem for the final time. He's been going to Jerusalem three times a year his entire life. For 32 years, Jesus has been going three times a year to Jerusalem to obey the Old Testament feasts, to do what the Old Testament says. And this is the last time in human form until he comes back again that he's going to Jerusalem and he knows he's going to die. That he is going to be the Passover lamb that will be sacrificed ultimately and forever for humanity. This has been the plan all along. And so Jesus and Luke is writing that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And these are his final teachings he's giving before he knows he's going to die. And we see that on his mission that he's going on, Jesus all along the way is stopping to have compassion on people. To love them. To serve them. To talk to them. He's not in such a hurry to get to Jerusalem that he misses the mission of what's around him the whole time. Because he understands that faith is pretty simple. It's just doing simple things. And as you do those simple things, God honors that. It's not about the big thing. It's about all the little things that lead up to that. And when he gets to Jerusalem, unfortunately, what Jesus is going to find is very little faith. There were three people at Jesus' cross. Three. Everyone else fled. Everyone else doubted. Everyone else ran away. Only three people that had any faith in who he was and what he was trying to do in that very hard and difficult moment of his death. That should break our hearts to even think about that. That our Lord, the one that did everything for us, only had three people that would take a stand, that would have faith that this made sense and we don't know why this is happening, but we'll trust God through it. Only three. And that's where Jesus knows. He's God. He knows everything. He knows that's what's going to happen and he's doing it anyway. And see, that's the way it is for us. We're supposed to live out our faith, share our faith, do these things, not because we think something great is going to happen, but because we know that Whatever happens, happens, and it's not for me to control. It's just for me to, to walk with God, to be with him. And the great part about all of it that you find in Jesus is the whole time Jesus is going to Jerusalem, you find this joy, this love, this compassion. He's not moping around. Got to go to Jerusalem. This is stupid. Stupid people got to die for. It's not his heart. He's looking at his father saying, I'm ready. Help me get ready. I want to do this. Like, I know it's going to be hard, but let, let's do this. I, I've been preparing for this for all of eternity. Like, we're ready to do that. Like, you find him, like, getting, that's his heart. It's not, uh, it, it's, wow. And that's where we find him here. Because it says, while traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. Now, remember, Samaria and Galilee represent something very significant. Galilee is where a lot of Jewish people live. It's part of the Israel. He's passing through Samaria and Galilee, which means it's almost like he's making a statement of the Old Testament covenant where God passes through between the, the sacrifice. That he, He's passing through the Gentiles and the Jews. He's literally passing through the world, saying, saying I'm, pass, I'm purposely passing through here to declare to the world their need for me. And as he entered a village, ten men with serious skin diseases met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, we look at a skin disease, and that doesn't bother us today, right? We're like, yeah, somebody got a skin disease. Get some ointment, you know, take some medicine. There were no antibiotics in this culture. Leprosy wasn't curable. These men probably had body parts that were missing because the leprosy had made them fall off. These, these people couldn't be in the community. They couldn't go to worship because people who had skin diseases weren't allowed into the temple. So, so they couldn't even go to the temple. They had to be outcasts because the Bible said to be sure to separate people with skin disease so it doesn't infect everyone. In other words, the Bible's saying this is a broken world and you have to figure out how to live in a broken world and you're responsible to, to care for the leper, to care for the poor, but, but there's a brokenness that's there. These men, these only these 10 guys were each other's best friends. They had no one else. 
There was, there was no one else to love them, to care for them. Everybody else stood at a distance. They, they left stuff for them on a rock and walked away because they didn't want to touch them. They didn't want to be near them. They didn't want to be contagious. Now, were there some who probably loved them and cared for them? Maybe. But in this culture, that was weird. You would have been looked at as a strange person. You may not have been allowed to go to worship in the temple if someone saw you with one of these lepers because they'd report it back to the Pharisees and say, oh, I saw Matt. He was with a leper. I saw him touch one of them. He can't come to church today. That's what would have happened in this culture. Wrongly. That's not how God intended the law to be done, but this is how it was being done in their day. And these men are raising their voices, and look at how obedient they are. They aren't coming up to the disciples. They're not running up to Jesus. They're, they're keeping their obedient distance, knowing that they're contagious, saying, could you just have mercy on us? Notice they don't say, please heal us. In other parts of scripture, we see where people like come right up to Jesus or they talk to him and say, please heal me. These guys are just saying, could you have some mercy on us? Because no one does. Because we're the lepers, we're the, we're the unclean, we're the bandaged and sore and bleeding and nasty guys nobody wants to be around. We have no, just have any kind of mercy you can have on us, please. I mean, you, you can hear the desperation in these men's voices. There's nobody. It's a disease that was so serious that it didn't matter what your economic race status was. If you had leprosy, you were a leper. And none of those things mattered. Lepers lived in colonies where it didn't matter race, ethnicity, or any of those things because the only people who were like you were the other lepers. See, we live in a world where we're going to be labeled as different. If we truly follow Christ, it's going to be evident that we're different. That we're like lepers in a lot of ways. That we're going to be looked at kind of sometimes with, ugh. Not because we're trying to be looked at that way, right? Jesus said he wanted to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Like, that's, that was the point. We're supposed to have favor. But these men are broken goes on, it says this, when he saw them, he told them, too bad for you. No, that's not what he said. He said, go, show yourselves to the priests. What's the problem with that, with what I just explained to you? Where do the priests, where are the priests at? The temple. We, we can't go there. We, we can't show, we're not, if we show ourselves to the priest and we're unclean, they could like kill us for breaking the law. Like, a this is big faith to start going to the priest. And you don't think these guys have tried that before? You don't think these guys have gone to the priests and the Pharisees? They haven't gone and said, please help us to the Pharisees, and they didn't care, and the priests didn't care. You don't think they'd already tried to go to the priests? Jesus doesn't say, and you'll be healed. He just says, go to the priests and show yourselves. Uh, they have a choice to make. Do we place our faith in Jesus and this man's command to us that he is God? Or do we look at him and go, I already tried that. Pfft, doesn't work. That's stupid. Go priest. Yeah, they don't care. You, you criticize the priests all the time. Why do you want us to go to these priests that you criticize all the time? Because they don't, they could have had every excuse in the book and look what happens. And while they were going, they were healed. See, they had to step out. There was, a, there was an issue of faith that, that as you were going, see, that, that's said all over Scripture. You'll find this term, as you go, as you are going. We'll look at a verse in a minute where Jesus says that, as you are going. See, Jesus was healing people, ministering to people, as he was going to do the most important event on the face of the planet, more important than the next election, way more important than the next election. Next November is not the most important event in American history. It's not. Jesus dying on the cross is the most important event for any nation in history. Period. And his resurrection. And so here you have Jesus on his way to the most important thing ever, and he's, he's loving these men, and they obey him. And it says, but one of them, seeing that he was healed, one of them. How many were there? Ten. One of them, seeing that he was healed, returned, 
and with a loud voice. Can you imagine the scene of this guy yelling? Like if the Bible says it's a loud voice, it was a loud voice. Like it was very, it would have been very uncomfortable. Politeness was a big issue in this culture. How to address people and authority structures. Our culture doesn't have that like they did, right? You got people yelling all the time, everywhere. This would have been radical. And it says, he gave glory to God. Gave glory to God. He is so overwhelmed by who God is. He can't help it. And then he fell face down at Jesus' feet, thanking him. Uh-oh. And he was a Samaritan. Didn't I, didn't I heal nine Jews? And only one Samaritan realizes that God isn't at the temple. God just healed me. And I need to go fall down before the God of the universe and worship him. And give glory to God for what he has done. That's why Jesus says, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Now remember, faith is not the magic pill that heals you. We saw numerous times in Luke, and we're going to see it some more, where Jesus heals people, and it doesn't say they had any faith at all. The other nine were healed. It doesn't say they had any faith other than doing what Jesus said and taking a walk. That's, that's, God heals people. God, God does miracles just to show off because he's God to whoever he wants to do it to. In this case, Jesus says, this man in particular says, your faith has made you well. He looks at him and he says, look, you think that it was just simply a transaction of you took a walk and you got healed. It wasn't your works that healed you. It wasn't you obeying me and taking a walk to go to the priest that healed you. What truly is bringing the healing, you ready for this? Listen, what's truly bringing the ultimate healing to this guy is his thankful response. It's gratitude, gratitude. The, other don't, the others don't have any gratitude. They don't have gratitude. This guy has gratitude. This shows that you understand what true faith is. Those other guys were just looking to get something. You got it. And he celebrates it. And he says, go on your way now. You are well. You are well. See, this is what joy looks like. True joy is this guy. True joy is it, it just throws yourself back at the feet of God and you're so grateful to him that you're so full of joy for what he's done that you could never do for yourself, that you could never make happen. You're just like, thank you for all you've done and I gotta tell you now, I, I can't wait. That, that's true joy, recognizing your own brokenness, the brokenness of the world and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose to worship in the middle of this mess. This is a Samaritan. Here's another part of the Samaritan's faith. Where were they told to go to the priest at? Doesn't say, does it? Which priests? Go show yourself to the priests. Which priests? You see, the Samaritans believed there were other priests on another mountain in another place. D did he go to the wrong ones and God healed him? Like he went a different way than the other nine? Like, well, I'm going to my priests in Mount Jezreel. You're going to your priests in Jerusalem. We don't know. But Jesus recognized that his response after receiving was one of incredible gratitude and joy. And can I just tell you, for many of us as Christians, and I can be guilty of this as much as any of you in this room, I can forget what I've received, and instead of having joy, I'm, a, I'm one of the nine lepers. Instead of having a faith that God finds and looks at and says, man, that's real faith, wow, he looks and goes, really, Matt? Come on. How much have I, I gave you breath today. 
your heart's still working. <laughs> That's a miracle. <laughs> he goes on and being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come. I love this. This is a number one question that people ask all the time. People love to talk about end times theology, books on how the world's going to end, right? I mean, that, that's kind of it. Remember, I, those of you who are young, young being college age, you probably don't remember Y2K, the year 2000, when everybody thought it was going to be doom and gloom, and every Christian, major Christian, like, pastor or author wrote a book about Y2K to sell, right? Like, like everyone, and it was going to be this big thing. All the computers were going to shut down. The economy was going to collapse. It was like, oh, my goodness, and it was panic, and people were storing up stuff and hoarding, and like, oh, we're going to die. Like, it was crazy. It really was, and nothing happened. The year turned, and we're like, oh, look, the computers are fine. Until 9-11. And on 9-11, just a handful of men brought America to its knees. And brought our economy to its knees. See, what we think is going to be big and I got to know when and how it's going to happen, God's like, I can use one man to turn the whole world. I can use a group of men to completely ruin you. And you have no idea. And so they're asking because these Pharisees for two reasons. Number one, they're asking, hey, are you going to bring the kingdom we want? That's the first question. We've seen that before from the Pharisees. They're asking, are you going to bring the kingdom the way we think it should happen and how we want it? The other question they were probably asking is trying to set a trap for him. Because if he gives an answer and then it doesn't happen exactly the way he says it, they could go, now see, we got you. You're a false prophet, which the Bible says we should do. So if you find a Y2K book written by someone who said the world was going to end and it's awful and you need to prepare and it didn't happen, they're a false prophet. I'm just telling you, they're a false prophet. And they made money off of people, which makes them a really truly a false prophet because that's what the false prophets do. They make money off those who are hurting and confused. And so here we have this and he says, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. What? Well, then how do I know when it's here? <laughs> if, it, if I can't observe it, then what? Like, it, what? Like, this would have been very confusing because they had it all figured out how it was going to happen. Can I tell you there are churches and there are people that have their end times theology, how it's all going to happen, broken down. This is exactly how it's going to go down, really. Because anytime someone tells me they know that, I'm like, okay, I can check that one off the list. It's not going to happen that way. Because no man knows. And he goes on and he says, no one will say, look here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is among you. You keep looking for something to prove God. You, look, you keep looking for something that, okay, now I'll finally commit. Now I'll get my life in order. Now, and God's like, I'm here with open arms all the time. I'm among you. I'm with you. This leper came and went to Jesus because he said, the kingdom of God is among me. God himself is here, and I'm worshiping him. Not, yeah, I gotta go find some more God somewhere. He goes on and he says, for you see, the kingdom of God is among you. He told his disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. In other words, the second coming. You're gonna, you would long to see the second coming, but, but you're not gonna see it in your bodily form. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. Then he says, they will say to you, look there, look here. Don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from the horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Again, Jesus keeps having this message that turns their world upside down. They, they did not believe the Messiah was going to die. They believed the Messiah was going to come, overthrow the Romans, and he was going to reign forever. And Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, I, I get that. Like, you, you're not even going to know. It's going to come out of nowhere. You're not going to be able to figure this out when it comes. But one thing you can be sure of is it's not going to happen until I suffer many things and I'm rejected by this entire generation of people. That would have turned their theology upside down because they didn't 
read their whole Bible. They were just reading the parts they liked. And isn't that us? How many of you, I don't want you to raise your hands. I'm not trying to judge anybody. How many of you have actually read through the entire Bible? Don't raise your hand. Just think. Now let me ask you this. How many of you have ever read through a book series? Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Hardy Boys, going way back. How many of you have ever read through a book series? Or a magazine series? You have read thousands and thousands of pages, but you haven't read through the book one time. That should be heartbreaking. Because if you don't know the book, which is why we walk through the book, you get deceived really easily. Really easily. You run after things you shouldn't run after. And Jesus is teaching all along the way and he's saying, don't be deceived. Be careful. Here's what's going to happen. I'm laying this out for you. Don't get caught up. And can you imagine them thinking what? This generation's going to reject you? Not us, Peter says. I, I'm not going to reject you. Jesus says, oh, when the croc, you know, when the crow, three times, cock-a-doodle-doo, yeah, you, it's, you're, you betrayed me. It's, you're gone. Like, he goes on and he says, I love this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Noah, okay, Noah, for those of you who might not know, Noah's the guy that built the ark. Who built the ark? Noah, Noah. Father Noah built the ark. Okay, so he built the ark, the, not the one in Kentucky. That's some other guy. Noah built a real boat, and a flood came and destroyed the earth, wiped out the earth. That's why God said the first time the world be destroyed by water, the second time the world be destroyed by fire, okay? Global warming is a great witnessing tool to people. Just saying. My Bible already told me this way before we think we figured it out. My Bible told me we're going to burn up. You keep predicting what year, and you're wrong. My God says, stop predicting, just believe it's going to burn up, and don't be irresponsible. That's it. That's it. That's the message. And so here you have Noah. He says, in the days of Noah, what were people doing in the days of Noah? Well, he tells us. They were eating. They were drinking. They were going to IU games, working concessions, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them. They're, they're just living life. We don't need to think about anything beyond just us and my little life and my little bank account, my little world. Like, I just, that's, that's what life's about, just family, just right here. And then Noah gets on the ark, and they're all like, oh, crud. He's got a boat in a desert. We don't. Because <laughs> Noah spent a long time building a boat, probably in a very arid climate, not near a body of water. And they're going, why are you building a boat, a giant boat where there's no water? What an idiot. Till the flood comes. And can you imagine the cries that Noah had to hear? The screams. That Noah wasn't allowed to open or shut the door. The Bible says God shut the door. Because he knew probably Noah was weak enough to open it and let that mess come in. And he's like, I... I I've done everything I can do to get these people attention and we got to start over with you, Noah. And just so you don't think Noah's some really great guy, if you read the rest of the story, Noah gets drunk. Like it's, it's, the rest of the story is not like, wow, Noah, he's my hero. No, he's a messed up guy just like you and me and if God can use Noah, he can use us. And then he goes on and he says, look at this. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But the day... Lot left Sodom. Fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house, he must not come back to get them. Likewise, the man who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Remember, in the story of Lot, she turned to salt because God said, don't look back. And she looked back and she turned to a pillar of salt. You see, if we're really honest... Many of us look back, and it's easy to look back to our old life fondly. <sighs> so much harder being a Christian. I remember when I could just do what I wanted. I just, I felt better. I didn't have to see all this brokenness, and lostness, and have to trust God by faith and, and allow him to put his joy in me when I don't have any. I saw someone yesterday that I hadn't seen since high school, she was at the game. Came to the game, I was working catering. She came through. 
And it was like this moment of like, we're friends on Facebook, but it was like one of those moments where it's like, whoa. And, and I said hello. And in just that conversation, what rushed back into my mind of my past, and I don't have a past with her, so there's, that's a good thing. Like there was no past with her. Like, but all these images and thoughts that rushed in to pause and say, God, thank you for saving me. Not, man, I wish I could go back. I was like, I'm so glad I, 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 it's, that's over. That's exactly what Lot's wife was doing. She was looking back saying, all my friends and the people versus saying they had their chance to repent and they didn't. And I've, I've got to just look at God. I've got to look to where he's called me to go and it's going to hurt. That, that's faith. That's hard. That's difficult. And it goes on and it says, one will be taken. I tell you, on that night, two. Oh, sorry. Back up. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Boy, that is not a message we like in the United States of America. We're making America great again. That's what we're doing. Don't, we're trying to preserve it. We're trying to secure it. God's like, it's not wrong to do smart things. You're not trying to hurt yourself, but it's not secure. There was a handful of terrorists that almost brought our country to its knees. A handful of guys. Had they actually hit all the targets they wanted, it probably would have been hard for us to survive. Had they hit the Capitol and the Pentagon and the other building, it would have been devastating. And for some reason, God had mercy on us. The question is, will he find faith? And we, everybody thought, all the pastors, oh, we're going to have a revival now. People are going to come to church. Yeah, they came to church for like four weeks and then they disappeared. That was the statistic. Nobody, everybody got panicked for a minute, came to God and said, save us, have mercy on us. And the, they all, the nine left. Were there a few that stayed? Sure there were. But the majority of people came and got what they wanted from God, felt better, and went right back around their life. And he looks and he says, I tell you on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other one will be left. Two women will be gathering grain. One will be taken, the other left. Two will be in a field. One will be taken, the other will be left. Where, Lord? I love the disciples. Where? Like, we want to see it. Like, no, you don't want to be, you don't, you don't want to be a part of this. And then he goes on and he says, they asked him, he said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Wait, that's not good. That's, I thought it was going to end well. And you're telling me that if we went, there's going to be vultures and corpses. It's the world we live in. It's full of vultures and corpses. Vultures who just look to, to get whatever they can to survive another day, to rip apart whatever they can rip apart without any concern for the death or life of a soul. That's our culture. Kill old people. Kill babies. Vultures. Got to get what's mine. It's going to be inconvenient taking care of these old people. It's inconvenient taking care of this baby. Can't ruin my life. I've got to secure my life. And to secure my life, we've got to get rid of the old, get rid of the sick, get rid of the young, and we can make the perfect race. I think I've heard this message before. Nazi Germany. And we keep falling for it. Over and over. God's like, I want you to tell people the joy they can find in me, and they're not going to find it anywhere in this world. They're not going to find it in a marriage. They're not going to find it in children. They're not going to... Are those things, can those things be joy-filled? Sure, if Christ is in them. If they're not, they're miserable. There is nothing worse. I've told, I tell every couple I marry, there is nothing worse than being lonely in a marriage. It's much better to be lonely alone than lonely in a marriage. So you better be sure the person you're getting with brings you to Jesus, that you're going to Jesus together so that when you're both alone, you've got someone to go to to bring you back together. That's exactly what Jesus is laying out. He says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom? This is an Acts. Right after Jesus has passed away, has died on the cross, he's been resurrected. He's been walking around. And when you jump to Acts, here the disciples are again. They asked him where, now they ask him when. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods the Father has set by his own authority, but, but, you might, 
if you believe enough. No, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Remember, Jesus is, what we just read was in between Samaria and Galilee. And he says, after he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. God. He doesn't appear again, right, until he appears to Paul on the road to Damascus in the, in the book of Acts. He's like, gone. Well, that was strange. We asked a when, and then he didn't answer us and disappeared. Can you imagine? Mom, when, when are we going to go get dinner? I don't know. I'm leaving. Bye. Like, as a kid, you're like, what just happened? How am I going to eat? Like, See, Jesus looks at them and he says, look, you're trying to be like the Pharisees. You want to know when the kingdom's going to be restored? Just trust me by faith. And here's the evidence. Are you ready for this? That you trust me by faith. That you're my witnesses. That you tell people about Jesus. Listen, can I, can I tell you? I was at our state convention this week. State convention of Baptist conference this week. And one of the speakers said something that stuck with me. And he said, do you believe that the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel is greater than the power of this world. And then he said, then act like it. Act like it. Tell people it's greater. Tell them there's nothing greater, nothing more joy-filled, nothing more loving, nothing more kind than a relationship with the God of the universe. Like, believe that there's power in, in what he says and in who he is. Don't doubt that. There is a world constantly trying to get us to doubt that God is who he really says he is and that he can do what he really says he'll do. And faith, faith says Jesus is looking for, to find people of faith, people who will say, I know Jesus is coming back. That's crazy that you believe that. No, it's not crazy. It's true. And I'm living for that mission. It's not crazy. It's crazy to you because you only live for the things of this world. I live for another world goes on and he looks Jesus says he told them this parable on the need for them to pray always listen he recognizes after giving this whole story after laying all this out he recognizes you're going to need to pray if if you're going to do this thing if you're going to walk with me if you're going to have faith you need to pray always and not become discouraged not become discouraged listen it is so easy to be discouraged I've been there and the only way out of discouragement is to, to fall at the face of Jesus. To fall at it, boom, it's you. I'm discouraged, I'm going to believe by faith what you say about me. What you say about the world, the hope I have in you. I'm not going to believe the lies. I'm coming back to you again and back to you again. And then get around some people who will do that with you. They won't lie to you. They, they won't give you the, oh, it'll all turn out okay. Anybody that tells you that, you should be like, have you read your Bible? It did not go well for people who followed God in Scripture. Like their families were a mess, their marriages were a mess. We were talking at staff meeting this week. I said, give me one good marriage from the Bible. Like one marriage that you'd say, that's the one. I want to be that guy and I want her to be. Like they're a mess. Brian, our youth pastor, said, well, I guess there's Ruth and Boaz. It's like, yeah, but then they got married, but we don't have the 10 years later story. It's like every romance novel, like every Hallmark movie. They meet, you know, it's wonderful. It's like, okay, let's see this sequel 10 years later, right? Kids running around and car broke down and like the mess that it is, right? And we long for that. That's the only one. I mean, you got Abraham and Sarah. Sarah told Abraham, sleep with my slave, then he lied twice and said, Sarah's not even really my wife. She's my sister. Well, kind, that was, that was kind of true, a half-sister. I mean, these are people that were married and made it in Scripture. Like, they made it all the way to the end, and God says, thank you. Like, thanks for having faith, because Abraham's an idiot, and you're an idiot, and together you trusted God, and look what I did. Like, praise the Lord. Like that, that's the beauty of this. And that's why he says, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect him. In other words, no love God, no love people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him. Remember, widows in this culture had almost no rights. They couldn't own land. It was corrupt. And it says, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect me, and yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice. 
So she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. (laughs) This guy's wicked. He doesn't believe in God. He just recognizes that, okay, I just want to ignore this. I don't want to deal with it. But if I don't deal with it, that's not just. To not deal with things is not just. And this judge knows that. He's a judge. He's like, well, I can't say it's, I got to give a ruling. And this woman isn't going to leave me alone until I give a ruling. That's supposed to be our heart. God, we, we long for justice in our world. We long for the world to be different. And we wait on your ruling and we continue to persist in our faith, in our prayers, and in our testimony until you come back and bring your ruling. That's why Jesus goes on and he says this. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay to help them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nonetheless, or Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find that faith on earth? Will he find it? Will he find this kind of faith in you and me? The faith of the leper, the faith of this widow. Will, will, will this be what defines our faith? Or will it be, well, obviously I have faith because look at my house, look at my cars, look at all my stuff. I'm not sick. So obviously I have faith because I'm not sick. And people who are sick, they don't have faith. Like, he says, no, this, this is what faith looks like. It's crying out for justice, not saying, well, we just need to have grace and not have any justice. You realize that the reason we have grace is because a very unjust thing was done to the God of the universe. The reason we get grace is because the most unjust act ever happened to our God. Goes on, and he says, dear friends, don't let this one, Peter says it this way, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay. But look at this. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And we we looked at repentance last week. Remember, any time someone repents, heaven's clapping. See, we think it's just salvation. Anytime someone prays through Jesus, no. The Bible says anytime someone says, I'm not going to go my way, but I'm going to go God's way, heaven goes, yes, that's faith. That's what we're looking for. Someone who will say, not the easy way, not the world way, but God's way. That's what I want for my life. That, that's exactly what Peter is saying. And he says, you think God's delaying. He's not delaying. He's merciful. He's the judge that's saying, I know that if I give this judgment, it's over. And I'm just holding back my wrath. But man, it is piling up so much that the more people cry out, the more I'm going to have to do something about it. And it's not going to be good for anyone when God comes back to do something about justice. Because we are all unjust without him. Matter of fact, we just celebrated the Reformation. And in the Reformation, there was sole, ready for this? Fide. You know what that means? Justification by faith alone. See, the Catholic Church told people there were works they had to do to be saved. Martin Luther read the book of Galatians and said, you're not teaching people right. That's not what Galatians, matter of fact, that's not what the whole New Testament, the New Testament says it's by grace that we're saved, through faith, that it's not by works, so that we don't boast. And we got a bunch of Catholic priests and a Catholic church that runs around and boasts about how great they are instead of calling people to true repentance and faith in grace. He looks and he says, look at this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's what Jesus said. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be. So if this is all going to happen, what Jesus just said, what Peter has said, in holy conduct and godliness, as you wait earnestly and desire the coming day of God, the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will melt in the heat, But based on his promise, we wait for a new heaven, new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell, where justice will be. Peter is laying out the same thing Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that you're going to be saved by your godliness and conduct. He's saying that if you have faith, the natural progression, like James says, faith without works is dead, is that you're going to want to be godly, to show people God. And when you don't act godly, you're going to repent and confess that so people see a gracious, loving God. That, that's our book. It's not by works. It's by God's mercy that we're saved like the leper figured out. Luke 18, he said, 
He also said this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down upon everyone else. This is why we know Jesus was thinking this. He looks and he says, I know there are some of you who think you're good. He says, two men went up to the temple complex to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this. God, thank you. Oh, thank you. That I'm not like other people. <coughs> Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, poor, sick, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I give. The entire focus of that prayer has nothing to do with God. Do you, do you not see that in the passage? Like he says, God, I thank you, and then the rest of it's about him. The whole rest of it's about him. Proving to God how awesome he is and how everyone else thinks. That is a terrible prayer, but those are the kinds of prayers people pray. Those are the kind of prayers pastors teach Christians to pray. It's awful. Jesus says, no. Now, should we give a tenth? Should we fast? Sure. If we do it by faith, not expecting to get, not expecting to prove ourselves, look how awesome I am, God. Listen, try, try in any relationship that you're in, okay? Try to act awesome all the time and see how that relationship develops. See how good that relationship gets when you like try to act awesome all the time and tell the person how awesome you are. Like, like see, see, how that, see how long that relationship lasts. It's not going to be very long <laughs> at all because that's not what Jesus did. Jesus came and lived a humble life. He told the truth, but he didn't try to get people to see how awesome he was. He tried to get to see people to see how awesome the Trinity was, the family was. It wasn't a, it's, it's totally upside down. And he goes and he says, but the tax collector standing far off, look at the tax collector. So you have the Pharisee, right? And his prayer. Look at the tax collector's prayer. It's just like the leper. He's standing far off. He won't even come close enough to the Holy of Holies. Like, is he outside the temple? I don't know. He's just far off because he's like, I can't even be near God for how sinful I am. He wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. This Pharisee's like, oh God, you're awesome. Oh. He's just showing off. And this guy is laid out. Now, can you show off by acting laid out? And Yeah, you can. There are people who do it. But this guy's like, I'm not even, no one sees me. I'm like in the back. I'm like in, I'm in the bathroom. I was going to fall down and worship in here, but then I realized I don't want to show off. So I actually went to the bathroom and fell down and cried and was crying out to God in the family restroom back there so no one would come in on me. That's this tax collector. And it says, he kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me. A sinner. He recognizes, I'm nothing. I tell you, Jesus says, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is, this is the gospel. This is what real faith looks like. It's a faith that says, I'm a sinner I'm crying out for your justice on me and your love and I know that and I know who you are versus I'm good. I've done my thing. You know, we talk about it all the time at Foot of the Cross, FX Church. We will struggle with people as long as they're struggle. As long as they'll let us struggle with them, we will struggle with them. But if you come to us like the Pharisees and say, I'm good, I have no need of repentance, I'm, I know what I'm doing, I'm smart, and we've walked you through scripture and you reject that, We've never kicked anyone out. Never have. Not afraid to. But those people leave, just like Jesus was left alone at the foot of the cross, because they can't take the message. It's the same thing. Just humble yourself for a minute. Jesus died for us. For an idiot like me that sees a girl that I haven't seen and all that rushes back and all I see is my sin and the brokenness and I go, God, you would save me. That's amazing. I don't deserve that. That's exactly what he's saying. Some people were even bringing infants to him so he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. I love this. Disciples are so quick to think they know God's will, right? It's what we're supposed to do. Dumb children are in the way, they're rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them 
Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whenever or whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. How are little children welcomed into the world? Helpless. Absolutely helpless and screaming their heads off. Ah! As a matter of fact, they make them scream. Like that's part of birth. Birth is like they, if the baby isn't screaming, it's like they suck their nose out, suck their ears out, and they're like, I mean, if you had that done to you, you would be screaming, right? Like you'd be like, stop it. It's like, okay, the baby's fine. It's crying. The lungs are coming out. You can hear the cries. Praise God, you have a boy. <laughs> now we need to cut him loose from you because you're awful. No, I'm just kidding. Like that's, that's birth. Jesus says, look, children are helpless, faithless. They know nothing. They don't know what's going on. They, don't, they only care about what they can get. They're not concerned about owning anything. They just want to be with somebody that will hold them. <laughs> That's it. It's the relationship that a child longs for. That's it. It's why it's so devastating when children don't have that initial parent there. When they're orphaned and why it hurts them so badly the rest of their life and they have to figure out how to let God be their father and hug them and love them and care for them in the brokenness. And notice, I love this. He says, this is what it's supposed to look like. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Obviously he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah, he's just a good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one's good but one, God. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Okay, Jesus just got done telling a story about a Pharisee that said what? I'm good, I'm so righteous, I'm so awesome. And then this guy has the audacity, after telling that parable, to look directly at Jesus after this question and say, I've kept all these from my youth. I wish his mom and dad were there, right? Wouldn't you love to have been like mom sitting there and been like, oh, I've honored my mother and father. Oh, really, son? Let's have, excuse me, Jesus. We need to have a conversation. You shut up. Okay, and like, here's how he didn't honor me. Here's what he did. Here's what, This kid, this young ruler thinks it's the same heart. It goes on and he says, when Jesus heard this, he told him, look at it. He doesn't even challenge his, his like falsehood. He's like, I already told this story once, you didn't listen, so I know if I tell it again, you're not going to listen, so let me try something else. And he says, when Jesus heard, he said, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. This young man didn't ask to come follow Jesus. All he wanted to do was get to heaven. Let me repeat that. This young man, all he wanted to do was get to heaven. He didn't have any desire to leave his life and the life he had to follow Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, the two are the same. You can't have one without the other. You can't get to heaven unless you submit and surrender to following me as a child. And children don't have a clue what it means to follow. They wander off and we put ropes on them with harnesses so they don't get run over by cars. Like, like literally, that's, Jesus is looking. And then it says, he goes on, I love this. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said. This is what happens so often, and, I, and it's hard for me as a pastor to work with. That you will, you will confront people exactly on what you know and where their heart is. Like, like you'll do everything to pray and to seek the scriptures and to sit down with people and lay it out and say, here... Here's what you're not believing. Here's what God might want you to do. Like, like this is it. And you can see the anger and sadness on their face. And in that moment, your heart just sinks because you know. You you can't convince them. That's what Jesus, Jesus said. He doesn't say, hey, I need to go follow that guy because he's sad. I need to try to, let's all cheer him up. Let's sing a song. Let's all cheer this guy up. Like, Jesus says how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, people who think they already have the stuff they need. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Listen, camels can't go through the eyes of needles. There have been a lot of theologians, modern theologians, who have tried to say Jesus didn't really mean a real sewing needle and a real camel. Baloney. See, God can change 
matter. He can shrink a camel and put it through the eye of a needle. We can't. Big camel, small needle, don't know what to do. I guess we could blend it and pour it through the needle, but then the camel would be dead. And we would do that, wouldn't we? I can get this camel through the eye of a needle. I'll show you. Let's blend him. See, we did it. We're a god. <laughs> you got a dead camel in a huge mess. And he says, those who heard asked, look at this. If, if this is true, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. See, they believed that the proof of salvation was how together a person's life was in a worldly sense. That's what they believe. There's no way someone like that could be saved. And when Jesus said no, but he wanted eternal life. Yeah, he wanted eternal life, and I told him the truth about how to get it. And he doesn't like the truth. See, God will call us to give up things, to surrender things, and it typically is very costly. And that's faith. That's the faith he's trying to find. Will you trust me to give you more than you ever thought? Will you trust me that what you have is enough? Will you trust me that a relationship with me is all you need? There's, there's nothing else. He lays it out so perfectly. And you might say, well, I'm not rich. We live in the richest culture in the history of the world. If you were one of those guys with a skin disease, you wouldn't have it in our culture. Because hospitals have to treat you by law. You can call the ambulance, they can pick you up, take you to the hospital, and they will send you home with antibiotics to treat you. We live in one of the most gracious and wealthy cultures in the history of man, and all we do is gripe about it. It's not enough. How many of you grow your own food? A few? Do you grow everything, including your livestock? That means you're wealthy. When I can go someplace and have someone grow my food, that means they're my servant. And then I can pay them to have them cook the food, that means they're my servant. Then I can pay them to have the food delivered to my doorstep so I don't even leave my house, that means they're my servant. That means I got multiple servants. That means I'm wealthy by any standard in human history. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's what do you do with it? That's the question. So Jesus wraps up and he says this. Then Peter said, I love Peter. He says, look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, I assure you, there's no one who has left a house, a wife, or brothers, parents, or children. Here's the key. Because of the kingdom of God. You can leave all those things selfishly for your own desires and suffer terrible consequences. But when you leave because of the kingdom of God, when, when there's no choice, you've done everything you can to love people in those relationships, you've laid your life down, and you're doing it for the kingdom, those people, man, will they not receive many times more <clears throat> at this time an eternal life in the age to come? In Mark's gospel, Mark says, he adds the word with persecutions. Won't you with persecutions receive so much more at this time and eternal life in the age to come? You see, it's a faith that says, I don't have to have all these things here and now. I'm willing to have them if God wants me to have them. If he wants me to have a wife and brothers and if he wants me to have those things, I'm, I, yes, I will take the responsibility to have them. But I know that that's not what really matters. What really matters is not what I've left, it's who I'm following. And in all these, it wasn't about what they left, it was their faith in who they followed. And I love this because you know what happens to the disciples? In the book of Acts, you read where the disciples, after they preach their first sermon, 3,000 people come to know God and are baptized. You know what starts happening? People start selling their properties, their homes. They start selling everything and laying it at the apostles' feet. They received many times more than they'd ever had before. You know what the apostles did with it? They distributed it to the poor, to those who were in need. 
to make the gospel known and send people out like Paul and other missionaries. That's what they did. They received many times more than they ever thought they could ever have or see or imagine. They received 3,000 brothers and sisters like that. A new family. And Jesus says, and it's not just about this age, it's about the one that's going to come.